the image of gold and the blazing furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said the King Nebuchadnezzar, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Great, thanks. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're continuing this series out of Daniel, and the title today is Homeless But Not Spineless. And the verse that uh, really, there's just one verse here I want to kind of elaborate upon, and that's the verse 12, verses 12 and 13, or verse 12, rather, it says, uh, but there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the images of gold you have set up. And I just want to maybe elaborate upon that thought. And, but before I do, just to give a bit of a background, really, about this book of Daniel, because it's, it's, a, it's a good book of the the Bible, Daniel was a prophet of the captivity and his, his period of ministry was about 70 years. He was a contemporary of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, so they overlapped and they were speaking into the same times really that uh, Daniel was. And really the, the book of Daniel has three kind of main purposes to it. It's really to, firstly to illustrate God's care for his people even when they're in captivity that he did not leave them, forsake them. Secondly, to prove that the kingdom of God is higher than the kingdom of men. 
And that comes through the, the book of Daniel very strongly. And then lastly, just to show how God controls and directs the history of nations. Uh, in the previous chapter, it says of God, it says he sets up kings and he deposes them. The kings rise and fall uh, at the behest of God. And that's quite a comfort to us these days when we question the politics of who's in charge of what. It's good to know that ultimately God is in control and that he, uh, you know, he allows uh, politics to happen the way it does and his purposes will be known and seen through those things often. So the story, the background story here is that in uh, about 600 years before the time of Christ, uh, the children of Israel were carried into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. And it was the judgment of God upon them because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry. It says, actually in Jeremiah's book, he says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. And that, that, that's the language that God used. That's how strong he felt about Israel. So they're, they're, they were taken into captivity. They were, they were uh, taken away. They were ransacked. And, uh, but it really was God's judgment. And Daniel and his fellow Jews were carried into exile and held captive in Babylon. Uh, but in captivity, we see that God was with them, that God was with Daniel and his three friends, and that they found uh, favor with their captors because of their character and because of how God had gifted them. God, God rose them to prominence, and that is the story that we see within Daniel as well. But from the reading of these first few chapters, I just want to make three observations which also have parallels to our own walk with God. So if you bear with me with that, uh, just three points really. Firstly, that Daniel and his three friends were strangers in a strange land. Uh, they had been ethnically cleansed from their land by Nebuchadnezzar and forced into exile. And the theme of exile runs throughout the Bible, throughout Israel's history, right up to 1948 when Israel became a nation. There's a history of, of, of exile. And in the history of Israel, the theme of being strangers in a foreign land <laughs> is very strong. Their history is punctuated by numerous captivities at the hands of the Egyptians, hands of the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. In fact, uh, in the time of the Roman Empire, really the first few centuries uh, after Christ was the most severe uh, persecution of the Jews. That they, they were, uh, they were uh, there was a series of wars after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh, the, called the Jewish-Roman Wars and, and the Jews were defeated and they were humiliated so badly that the Romans wanted to erase any memory, any contact that Israel had with their land. So that was really the beginning of a, of a great diaspora of Jews going into all of the world, uh, places as, as far afield as China and India and Central Asia and Africa. They were completely erased from their land and no longer was the land called Judea. At that point, it was called Palestine. That's, that's what the, the, the Romans wanted to erase every memory of the Jews with their land. And uh, you know, that, that history of the Jews 
has continued through, throughout the ages where they have been dispersed and they've been despised and yet their contribution to society, the societies they've been a part of has always been out of proportion to their actual numbers. Whether it be politics, whether it be in the field of business, in the field of medicine, uh, the arts, their contribution has always been huge in, in every society that they've been a part of. Uh, these captivities reflected both God's judgment for their sin, but also his mercy in the sense that the, the, the dispersal of the Jews was also their salvation in the sense that it preserved them as a people. They could not be contained and annihilated completely if they were dispersed. And that was, that was most notable in Nazi Germany. The Jews could not be those six million of the 16 million population of Jews in the world, nearly, uh, nearly a third of their population was wiped out from 1939 to 1945. Their salvation was in, this, in, in the fact that they had been dispersed, that there were still pockets of Jews all over the world. So that's their, their history. Then these captivities reflect, reflect both God's judgment and God's mercy. Throughout their history, Jews have lived as aliens in strange lands, as a dispersed people. There's a fascinating story about a man named Zablon Simitov, who is the last remaining Jew in Afghanistan. At one time, Afghanistan had a population of 5,000 Jews. He's the last remaining Jew in all of Afghanistan. His name is Zablon Zimitov. And I'll tell you just a bit about his story because it's quite interesting. In fact, I, this is as good as I get with, with PowerPoint. That's a picture of him. <laughs> this is my PowerPoint, if you can focus. But that's Zablon Zimitov. And his story is that, uh, that he's an Afghan carpet trader and, and a, 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 a restaurant owner who is believed to be the last remaining Jew in Afghanistan. He's also the caretaker of the only synagogue in, in Kabul. He says it's not easy to practice his religion alone. However, he has obtained special permission from the nearest rabbi in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, to slaughter his own meat in line with kosher dietary laws which can normally only be done by a specially trained Jewish butcher. Uh, Simintov lives alone in a small room next to an old synagogue on Flower Street in Kabul and receives donations from Jewish groups abroad and sympathetic Muslim locals. So, so he has favor where he is, but he's, he's the last remaining Jew. His wife and two daughters live in Israel. He's been quoted as saying, I don't want my Jewish heritage erased. My father was a rabbi, my grandfather was a rabbi. We were a big religious family. And he, he remains as the last Jew in Afghanistan. So, so there's a resilience. There, there's something in the Jewish people uh, that has stood, that, uh, that has been seasoned by these captivities and has been uh, has been made resilient through these captivities. At one time, in 1921, uh, nearly 50% of the population of Baghdad was Jewish. There were 80,000 Jews living in Baghdad of a population uh, close to 200,000 uh, people in Baghdad in 1921. 20, now there are known to be six Jews living in Baghdad. So there's been a great, uh, 
you know, there's been a great persecution against the Jews, particularly since 1948, when, when Israel became a nation and, and Jews were ethnically cleansed from the, the neighboring Arab nations. And they, they came and populated Israel. But that's just to give you a bit of story. So the, the, the language of exile and homelessness runs through the Bible. Words like alien and stranger and pilgrim recur through scripture over and over and over again. From the beginning, they were a people on the move. God's everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants was to get up and go to a land I will show you. That was his promise to them. And uh, I'll read you these words. This is the call of Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And then he goes on to say, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now live as an alien I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And, and, and God makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham. That's, that's true to this day, and that is why the, the Jews have made their contribution out of proportion to their numbers. That is why they have been a blessing in the earth. Now, I admit I am biased because I married into a Jewish family. My wife is Jewish, so I am biased, but I want to say that I do not, my bias does not go to the extent that say that there are not wrongs, particularly in modern day Israel, that there are not rights and wrongs to both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian question. And, uh, and we must remember that actually within that region, most of our Christian brethren are actually Palestinians. There are 50,000 Palestinian Christians in, in, in the West Bank and 3,000 in Gaza. And those are our brethren. 80% of the Christians within Israel are, 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 are Arab Christians who would identify themselves as Palestinians. So, so we must understand that. If, because I do meet people who have an extreme bias towards Israel as though Israel can do no wrong. And yet, yet we have to remember there are rights and wrongs on both sides and that actually in Christ, our brethren are primarily Palestinian. So that informs us in terms of the, the, the dialogue and the debate that has to happen. So I just say that to, to kind of, lest you think I'm, I'm a bit overboard here. So God established his covenant with Abraham, and uh, it goes on, and I'll just use some verses here that speak of this language of, of being aliens and strangers and pilgrims. In, in Exodus, or Exodus, it talks about, I established my covenant with Israel to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Again, in Exodus, it says, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. So they were to be generous to the aliens in their midst. Uh, in Leviticus, it says, the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. And this informs us today in terms of an attitude towards refugees, towards people who come into our own country, who we would consider aliens. 
And it says, uh, as, as with the children of Israel, he says, he says uh, to treat them as one of your native born, to love them as yourself. Because actually, if you go back historically, probably most of us were, were aliens. Our, our ancestors were aliens coming to this country. So, uh, I mean, I'm certainly an alien. In fact, I had a document at one point that said I was an alien. I had to register with the police. And they would visit me once a year and look at my alien document. And uh, so it's very real to me that, uh, that I am an alien, but I have, I have been embraced and, and uh, taken in as, as native born, as it were. It says in First Chronicles 29, 15, it says, we are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow. So that's the perspective. You know, when you see that uh, when you have that sense of being an alien and a stranger, that you don't fit seamlessly or comfortably necessarily in with the culture that you're, that you're amongst, then you do have a sense that really our days on earth are like a shadow. Psalm 119 says, I'm a stranger on earth. And then we take it into the New Testament. Hebrews talks about Abraham and his descendants. It says, they, they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country. They were longing for a heavenly one. Because by faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. So this theme runs through the Bible. And, uh, and the parallel with us really is that, uh, that it's true for us, that there's a very real sense in scripture that we too are strangers and aliens in this world. That this world is not our home, that we're just passing through, really. Uh, it's not our permanent home, that we are created for eternity. And that's that sense that we are in the world, but not of the world. That delicate kind of fine line balance that we, that we walk in. Uh, Jesus spoke of this when he was speaking of those who follow him. He said, they are not of the world any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. So we're, we're not of the, of the world, as it were. And that's, that might be a, a strange concept for some of us because you think, well, what does that mean, not being of the world? And yet we've been sent into the world as salt and light. In 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then we're encouraged in Romans 12 not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So there's that very real sense of being, being yes, we're, we're, we're planted in this world, but also we're not made for this world. We're made for a, for a, a heavenly world, that, that this life is temporary. Uh, you know, we're told to fix our eyes uh, not on what is seen, but what is, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So, so that's the challenge to us because we're so earthly minded and we're so uh, lured by the, the attractions and the, the uh, the, the pull of the world around us that we often forget really where, our, where our, our real permanent home is. So that's the first point, that, that Daniel and his friends were strangers in a strange land, and I would say that we also 
to a degree, are strangers in a strange land. Though we've not been exiled, we've not been ethnically cleansed the way they have, there is a sense that we too are strangers in a strange land. Second point is that God was with them in exile. He did not abandon them, but he gave them favor and influence with their captors. We've seen this before in scripture with Joseph, with Nehemiah, where even in captivity, because God's favor and blessings on them, that they actually rise to prominence, they rise to positions of power because of their wisdom and their knowledge and because of what they, they bring to the powers that be. And Daniel found favor uh, with his captors while in exile because of his character and his wisdom and his gifts. Uh, and God kept his everlasting covenant with him. And, and God was with him in it, in the midst of it. They reflected the fact that, that, uh, that this reflected the fact that God, that Daniel and his, his friends had favor with God. And, uh, and the parallel with us is also that God keeps his covenant with us, that Jesus never leaves us, he never forsakes us, that, uh, that we're not orphaned, we're not abandoned, and, and even though we walk through dark valleys, we have the promise that we will fear no evil because he is with us. And Jesus promised his presence to us uh, in, in this world, uh, in, in, our, in our being strangers in a strange land. Jesus promises his presence with us uh, through all the joys and the challenges that life brings. And that's a real comfort for us to know that, to know deeply that we know that we know that we know that Jesus is with me. Jesus is with you tomorrow when you go to work. Jesus is with you when you're faced with, with a challenge, when you're faced with a temptation, when you're faced with an issue that needs a solution, needs a decision. Jesus walks with you through that. Jesus is with you in your marriage. Jesus is with you in your singleness. Jesus is with you uh, in every phase of life. And, uh, and, and as he was with uh, Daniel and his friends here. The last point is simply, that Daniel and his friends kept their uniqueness and their distinctiveness. The Israelites were always to be a unique and distinctive people among the nations around them. And uh, as, as a result, Daniel and his friends, they stayed true to their convictions without compromise. That in spite of the humiliation of captivity, these Jews kept their distinctiveness and their integrity before God. And this is what we see here in this verse where, where it was complained of them that there are some Jews who, ha, uh, who, ha, who will not bow down and worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And uh, they kept their distinctiveness in, in the midst of their life there. Daniel and his friends didn't defile themselves. And uh, historically, in the history of the Jews, actually, in captivity, they've always continued to observe the law of Moses. Historically, they've always had functioning priests, even though they've had no temple and they've had no sacrifices. The Jews have built synagogues wherever they've been dispersed to, which is why you have this, this little synagogue in, in Kabul, in Afghanistan, that has one member to it, because they've always kept their religious traditions wherever they've gone. Because of his character and the certainty of his relationship with God, Daniel and his friends chose to maintain their distinctiveness as Jews and not become so assimilated that they compromised their convictions. 
And that's a message to us as well. They refuse to be seduced by the charms of the world around us. They refuse to compromise their relationship with God. Uh, so they were faced with a dilemma. Do we obey God or we do, do we obey Nebuchadnezzar? And that's a dilemma we might face too. You might face it in the workplace regarding ethical issues, issues of, of honesty or integrity. Do you obey God? Is there a higher law or do we obey the laws of the land around us? And we see that this happened to the early disciples in Jesus' time, uh, that they were faced with this dilemma where they were, Peter and John were brought in before the religious leaders and they were told not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And they said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So sometimes we face those ethical decisions, those dilemmas in terms of do we compromise, do we say, well, it's okay to do this, it doesn't compromise my faith, or do we make a stand for Christ and say, well, no, in conscience, I cannot do that. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends did here. In conscience, they could not bow down to an idol because they worshiped the living God. They worshiped the true God. How could they possibly do that? Betray their relationship with God. So the challenge to us is, is this. As pilgrims on the earth, as dual citizens of two kingdoms, how do we live out the challenges of being in the world and not of the world? How do we judge which side of that fine line we fall on. And it has to do with heart issues, I believe, that, that uh, this obeying God or, or, or do we obey the culture around us, do we compromise, really has to do with the issues of the heart. It has to do with where our treasure is. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And it's good for us to, to, to take stock, to do an inventory sometimes of our, of our inner world and say, Lord, where is my treasure? What do I really value in life? You know, is it, is, it, is it materialism? Is it celebrity? Is it accumulation? Is it success? What do I really value in life? What's important to me? Where does my treasure lie? And that's very important. And there's a, there's a, a, a verse I'll, I'll read here out of Colossians. It says this, <clears throat> highlights this point as well. It says, since then, you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And uh, that's a challenge to us. It's a challenge for me because how often am I just consumed with the things of, of this world, the things of life, and my mind isn't set on heavenly things. And yet they, they, we're to encourage one another in these things. That... Uh, that uh, to set our hearts on these things. At the same time, we're not to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We're to be salt and light in the world. We're to, be, we're to, to live out our, our life in Christ, to, to, to have the flavor of loving God and the flavor of loving other people, and to, to live it out. Our love, our generosity, our kindness, our goodness, our patience should be seen and known by people, not because we try to be that way, but because the character of Christ is formed in us, because we're being changed into the likeness of Jesus, more of Jesus comes out of us. And, and that's really what it means to be salt and light. So uh, the conclusion, like Daniel and his friends in this story, we are to, to understand that we are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. 
that this life is just a vapor. And you know, the older I get, the more aware I am of my own mortality. And maybe those with, with no hair or gray hairs like me understand that, that your perspective changes. Uh, we've had a number of bereavements, uh, my wife and I, this last year, uh, starting with my own sister who died uh, nearly a year ago, and then other people we've known. In fact, recently a, a, a woman uh, who, who used to come here to this congregation in a wheelchair, you may have remembered her. I forget her name, what's her name? Caroline. Caroline. She, she passed away, I think it was last week. She had motor neuron disease. And we've known numerous people, and it focuses the mind, really, of, of, of where our, tr our true home is, that this life is fleeting, this life passes. And the older you get, the more you're aware of your own mortality, and that the number of years ahead of you are fewer than the years behind you. And, uh, and the, the, you know, these things impress upon you. Um, so we're strangers and pilgrims on earth, but to understand that God is with us through our earthly pilgrimage, that we're not alone, we're not abandoned. And then lastly, as we live out our faith, we are to be distinct and different for all the right reasons. You know, sometimes church and Christians are distinct and different for the wrong reasons, you know, for being legalistic and narrow-minded. Jesus described, you know, uh, straining at gnats and swallowing camels, that lovely expression. And sometimes Christians can be distinct for being a bit mean-spirited, or they can be, be distinct and different for being irrelevant to the world around them. They're just, they're just, uh, they're just not, they're not relatable to the real world. And sometimes, uh, for, for those kinds of reasons, we can be distinct and different, yet we're to be distinct and different for the right reasons because we love God, because we love people, because we have Jesus in us and, and living out through us. I want to finish with, a, with just a, a, a meditative kind of thought here in terms of where our affections lie. And this is a psalm. And you might just close your eyes right now because this is a kind of meditation, so... I'll, I'll read this out. This is Psalm 73. And David, uh, the psalmist speaking of really being in a desperate place, being low, being, feeling a bit forsaken, maybe even feeling a bit sorry for himself as we do sometimes. He says this, he says, when my heart was grieved, this is Psalm 73, verse 21, and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. That's a perspective that we need. Being, being, uh, being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength in my heart and my portion forever. As for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And another one out of Psalm 84 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. 
Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. This idea that we are pilgrims going through this earth, just as Daniel and his friends were, strangers in a strange land, but that deep sense of yearning for God and knowing the presence of God with them. Knowing that God doesn't leave us, God doesn't forsake us. So Father, I pray that uh, we would take this message into our hearts of being strangers in a strange land, of knowing your presence, of being distinctive and different uh, for all the right reasons, Lord. God, enable us, help us to do that. And we're just so grateful for your nearness, your closeness in our lives. And Father, just pray for anyone here who feels distant from you. And just pray that just by humbling ourselves and acknowledging that distance and saying, Lord, I, I want your nearness. I want your closeness. That you would respond to that and draw near. Father, we pray. We commit ourselves to you and to your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.